This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 26, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. It's time for us to admit that COVID is going to be with us going forward. So says Cato's Jeff Singer in a new Pandemics and Policy paper at the Cato Institute. Singer argues that the strategy for dealing with COVID should shift to harm reduction rather than lockdowns and other heavy-handed mandates. The paper is available now. The actual term harm reduction was created by a, a group of uh, people who were dealing with people with substance use disorders in Liverpool, England in the 1980s. They became convinced that you know, efforts to have a quote unquote drug free society were completely unrealistic. And so rather than just try to get people to stop using drugs, they said, let's do what we can to make people who continue to use drugs use it safer. And they actually coined the phrase harm reduction. And 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 that involved, you know, things like uh syringe exchange programs, um and, and that kind of thing. Um but when you think about it in a in a modern developed society like the US, much of what healthcare practitioners do every day is practice harm reduction. Uh, and, and that's why when you suggest harm reduction for substance use disorder to them, they usually get it immediately and uh, fine with it. Which, For example, uh, when I have a, uh, a patient who's overweight, doesn't get enough exercise, and has now developed high blood pressure and, and borderline diabetes, and has high cholesterol, and I know that if I, if I get this person to just change the diet and and uh, get on an exercise regimen. We don't need any medication. We can get this person under control. But if he continues in this on this track, he's going to give himself a heart attack or something like that or a stroke. So what I end up doing when I prescribe a statin drug, for example, for the cholesterol or a medication to get the blood pressure down or a medication like metformin for the, for the glucose levels, I'm practicing harm reduction. I'm basically saying, uh, since you don't you're not going to be changing your lifestyle anytime soon. Let me do what I can to make your lifestyle choice less dangerous to yourself. So that that's basically harm reduction. And and in in a lot of ways, uh, physicians and their patients practice harm reduction, like that's almost the normal course of medicine, at least in the United States. That is, we don't physicians and patients typically aren't saying, "Hey, what you need is a dramatic lifestyle change to reverse the course of this uh, path you're on. You need to you could you should take this drug that will lower the costs that you face for the choices that you are continuing to make." Well, yeah, I mean. Clearly, we will tell them, uh, you know, if we could avoid this uh, if you would just make these changes. But, you know, we are realistic and the patients are realistic and they'll say, well, that'd be great. I, I would love to do that, but I don't think I can. And then if they do, of course, then we are able to withdraw some of those harm reduction uh, interventions. So, you know, sometimes they, while they're on the medication, uh, they do take their weight off, they do start exercising, and then we discover, hey, I don't need to have you on this anymore. So, but in the meantime, I'm reducing harm. So in the context of COVID-19, this is a disease, uh, an illness, a virus that is spread through contact, through relatively close contact with people, and for our economy, for our individual level of mental well-being, uh, most people just don't want to do that. Right. So that's what, uh, you know, people may reasonably say, well, you know, COVID-19 pandemic is not the same thing as, uh, let's say, you know, using uh, 
injectable illicit drugs or or overeating and not getting enough exercise. Uh, and that's true because uh, you don't get a lot of choice about catching COVID. It's a virus that goes after people, whereas the others involve lifestyle choices. But what they do have in common is they're both endemic. In other words, it's unrealistic to think that you're going to eradicate people being overweight or people not getting enough exercise or people using drugs or the COVID-19 virus. Uh, it's it's never going to go away, or if it does, it's going to be a long time from now because so far in medical history, only one virus that infects humans has been eradicated, and that's a smallpox virus. And that took over 200 years, and that last case was in 1977. So efforts, uh, just like with substance use disorder, a zero-tolerance policy ends up generating a lot more harms and doesn't reach its goal. For example, zero tolerance is what leads to things like the spread of HIV and hepatitis and overdoses uh, when it comes to drug use. Well, the same thing uh, applies when it comes to dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, you have efforts at uh, to, to control it by stay-in-home orders and locking down and closing industries and businesses and closing schools. They all have their downsides, and some of them are actually very serious downsides, particularly when it comes to young children uh, missing school. And these downsides, of course, disproportionately harm people who are already uh, in the lower income groups and and we're starting from a lower baseline to begin with. And they're not going to accomplish their goal. So it's time to uh, accept the fact that COVID-19 is not going to go away. It's going to be part of the, I like to say, ecosystem and it's going to be endemic, and they're going to be, just like we deal with flu cases and cold cases, there's going to be COVID season, uh, maybe seasonal, may, you know, we don't know that yet, but probably. Uh, and the good news is uh, that we've learned a lot in the last nearly two years. Uh, first of all, we learned that the virus isn't as deadly as we originally feared. Um, for example, by comparison, um, smallpox, which I talked about a minute ago, that had a 30% fatality rate. One in three people died from smallpox. Ebola has a 50% uh, fatality rate. A uh, very common virus called respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, uh, which particularly parents of young children are familiar with because it has outbreaks. Um, that has a 1.7% uh, a fatality rate in, in young children and 11% fatality rate in adults who get it. Uh, and, and it, by comparison, what we've learned now is the infection fatality rate for COVID-19 appears to be in the range of between 0.3 and 0.4%, depending on, on demographics, population differences, regions of the world, and vaccination rates. By the way, it's important to distinguish between case fatality rate and infection fatality rate. Uh, case fatality rate is the number of deaths divided by the number of cases. Uh, and of course, that depends on the number of cases reported. We know there are many people who get COVID, they don't get tested, they don't get listed as a reported case. Uh, and uh, so that's why the CDC tells us that as of now, roughly 37 million cases have been reported in the United States. I don't think anybody believes that only 37 million out of the 330 million Americans have had COVID. The infection fatality rate is the actual number of people who have evidence that they were infected. It's the, it's the fatality rate divided by that. So uh, 
and and that of course is is determined by doing antibody random sampling antibody tests. So based on random sampling antibody tests, it looks like there's about a 03 to 0.4% infection fatality rate. And if you take out the people who are uh, in institutions like like nursing homes or prisons, it's actually lower than that. So, I mean, that's real, and that's a lot higher than the infection fatality for influenza. So it's not, quote unquote, just the flu or just a cold, but it's also not Ebola or smallpox or RSV. So that's good news. Also, uh, we know that there are things that we can do uh, we, we know who gets it the worst. For example, 80% of all deaths seem to be among people over, over the age of 60. So there are certain populations, institutionalized people and older people, that we should focus our uh, attention on protecting. And so with this knowledge that we've learned over the last close to two years, uh, we should now be able to uh, focus our efforts on harm reduction, reducing harm from this endemic virus so that people can go back to living a quote-unquote normal life because it's unsustainable to continue to lock down people, restrict people, and expect, number one, that society is going to be livable, and number two, that the virus is going to go away. When I read uh, some news coverage about this, and I, I, based on our discussions, I think you're frustrated by it too. We, they talk about cases, they talk about hospitalizations, but almost none of that is given a denominator. That is, when whenever we hear about, well, there's been, a, been an outbreak here and the, the number of, of cases has gone way up or hospitalizations have gone way up or X number of children have died uh, from this virus that is never put into context. Correct. In fact, for example, we know, at least as of July 29th, the CDC reported that there were 358 deaths in children. And children is defined as people under the age of 17, by the way. It's not broken down by ages. 358 deaths in children under 17 from the beginning of the pandemic till July 29th. Now, we don't have any, I don't have any more recent numbers to give you. But by comparison, the average uh, death rate from children from RSV annually is 500. And then um, according to Professor Marty McCarry at Johns Hopkins and his team, they actually dug into the data because the CDC doesn't give enough breakdown. And it looks like the overwhelming majority of those COVID deaths in children had comorbidities like leukemia or other uh, other illnesses that made them much more predisposed to having a bad outcome. So um, these are important things to keep in mind because there's a tendency for people in the media largely to try to stoke fear because uh, the expression goes, if it bleeds, it leads. And fear-driven policy uh, is not a good way to go. It's, those, I mean, you need evidence-based interventions. Um, it looks like the best harm reduction tool that we have in our tool chest is vaccination. That's the one that is the most objective uh, evidence that it reduces harm. Even with the Delta variant, uh, it appears that uh, people who are vaccinated, um, while they may have a higher rate of quote-unquote breakthrough infections from the Delta variant, almost all the time, they're either mild colds or asymptomatic, or at the worst case, a real nasty cold, which of course we've 
dealt with since the beginning of time. We have we know how to live through a nasty cold. Very few wind up getting sick enough to go to the hospital. So if, if you've been vaccinated, for, for all intents and purposes, you've relegated the COVID-19 virus to a really bad cold that's going around. As far as I'm concerned, if that's all, then mission accomplished by getting vaccinated. Now, there are always people who die from colds, and there are people who die from influenza. But it's a, it's fortunately a small enough portion of the population that it doesn't uh, create enough alarm for us to try to completely you know re-engineer society over it. So the vaccination seems to be, out of all the things we could try, the one that is the most clearly effective means of harm reduction. Other forms of harm reduction uh, include you know, mask wearing. But even when it comes to mask wearing, unfortunately, there have been a, a, a scarcity of randomized controlled trials over uh, about masks. Uh, you know, it, it, intuitively, it seems like if you wear a mask, that'll help. But nobody's really studied it. What we have studied from mechanistic studies, and this is, you know, these are where you kind of mechanically test the, the, uh, the competency of masks, it looks like cloth masks are extremely ineffective. It's just a slight, a, a slight cut above wearing no mask at all. The surgical type masks that a lot of people wear are slightly better than the cloth masks. Uh, and the N95 masks, if they're fitted, they could give you protection for about 25 hours. Uh, if they're unfitted, the so-called KN95 masks, they could give you protection for a couple of hours. And you need to be careful because there's some research suggesting that some of the KN95s that are made in China are really not up to speed. So you really need to check, you know, where it's where it was manufactured and look into it before you buy one. So yeah, masks probably help, but they're not nearly as effective as vaccinations. And then we get into all these, you know, political battles over mandatory masking. Uh, I would advocate that there shouldn't be one size fits all impositions on people regarding masks. I think these matters are best settled at the local level with local knowledge. Uh, and so, for example, uh, you know, if a, if a business wa wants to have people wear masks when they do business with them, uh, for maybe for their own safety, plus for this to, to uh, make their customers feel safe, that's their right to do that. And we should respect that. Uh, I would argue that if you're an immunocompromised person or an elderly person, in general, vaccines don't work as well on older people because their immune systems are not what they used to be. So they don't seem to respond as as robustly to vaccination as younger people do. So, you know, it's a good idea to wear a mask in a crowded environment where you don't know who these people and who are there. Yeah, I would recommend that. Um, on the other hand, it shouldn't give you a false sense of security because what we do know is that the masks give up maybe a little bit of protection, but not enough. So you should, it's more important that you maintain a distance with someone if you're concerned that they may be ill than it is that you have your mask on. The distance is probably more effective. So, yeah, I, I've seen the fights that are going on right now between parents uh, and some members of the general public and either public health authorities or mayors or governors, it seems like this fight is over, uh, as you note, a relatively small amount of protection. And and people are, I guess, over-investing in masks as some sort of solution to allow us to live in cosmopolitan society just as we would normally. The only difference is wearing a mask, and that's good enough. But that it seems like we've overinvested, I guess, our our energy into 
mask mandates. Right. And, and the data we have on it is very inconclusive. So, for example, you have some of the areas of the country where they've had mandatory masks indoors and outdoors have, despite that, have had among the highest case rates and even the highest hospitalization rates when other areas haven't. So um, it, it, it's it's almost become what I call hygiene theater, where people are, are kind of signaling to one another that they're doing their part and shaming people who are not doing their part the way they are. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's really, you know, very marginal how much effect that kind of an intervention has. The same thing with, uh, you know, sanitizing surfaces. It's been known for a long time now that this virus doesn't seem to spread by surface contact. So getting compulsive about sanitizing surfaces, I mean, it's always good to have a clean surface. You know, it gets rid of bacteria too. So, I, and I'm a surgeon, I'm always washing my hands. Uh, and I'm sure my patients appreciate that. <laughs> but um, uh, so I'm not saying don't do that. But but if you think that repeatedly sterilizing a surface with chlorine bleach or something like that is going to do anything. No, it's not. It's just giving you a lot of kind of extra work to do. Um, same thing. Now there's information. There's a recent study that was uh, reported in the New York Times uh, that some of these uh, plexiglass partitions that are being erected everywhere may actually be trapping the virus in that space and not allowing it to just kind of diffuse into the air and 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 decrease the load. So it might actually be spreading COVID rather than uh, protecting against COVID. Right. It might protect the person on the other side of the glass, but for all the people on the same side of the glass as you, not so much. In right, fact, right. maybe the opposite. A lot of these things that we did, they, they I mean, intuitively, they seem to make sense. Uh, but now it's been, it's months later and we have more information and we're learning, you know, this probably is a waste of time. Uh, I, I point out in my paper that at the end of the day, like with the other endemic infections from the colds to the flu, there's a whole lot of just common sense things we should do. And one would be to stay the hell away from someone if you think you're coming down with sickness. Um, I think- uh, And that's good a, advice just generally. Yeah. And generally, if you think you're coming down with something, then cancel your social plans and tell your friends, I better stay, better not come over. I think I'm coming down with something. I want to give it to you. Um, there's been a tendency in, in, in this country for people to go to work feeling sick. Uh, you know, they, they show up with a cold or whatever. And of course, they're spreading it to their uh, workmates. Uh, I think not only should they not show up with an illness, and I'm talking about a cold as well as COVID, um, but employers should, you know, have a policy. Look, if you're if you feel like you're coming down with something, don't come in. Work from, and especially in the last year and a half, how we've learned how so much work can be done remotely. Um, there's no reason to come in if you feel like you're getting sick, and you could probably not everybody, but you your job that you have might be able to be perform remotely for the next couple of days until you're better. So those are kind of common sense things we could do. So uh, in general, when we talk about harm reduction, uh, if I understand you correctly, vaccination, number one, uh, and everything else is either inconclusive or uh, pales in comparison when it comes to reducing the harms associated with this virus. I think that's uh, an excellent summary. <laughs> Dr. Jeff Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and author of the new pandemics and policy paper on harm reduction. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>